Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone and welcome to another episode of on the turnbuckle here on mypodcasthouse.com thank you for joining us and of course mypodcasthouse.com proudly brought to you by talktober kicks off today day one of talktober so everyone who's registered and if you haven't registered you can still do so at www.themailhug.com.au and all you need to do is go out there and make one phone call a day to a mate ring them up say good day have a chat talk about whatever you like just have the chat, have the conversation and do it and it'll make you feel better and it will make them feel better as well. Just like WWE champion Drew McIntyre has. This is WWE champion Drew McIntyre. I'm taking the Talktober challenge by committing to call a buddy every day for the month of Talktober. I would love for you to support me and I would love for you to do the same. Head to themailhog.com.au and take the Talktober challenge. It's Talktober, runs for the entire month of October, and you can be a part of it at themailhug.com.au. Walsh and Lyle, hello, boys. Very good day, Tony. I'm excited about the chat. Lyle tells me that he's organised for us today. Who have you got for oh, yeah. us, Lyle? We'll keep that under wraps. I'm not going to release the name yet. Right. It's a big, big, big surprise. Uh, you know, second-generation wrestler, you know, big family name in the wrestling industry. You told me third generation. Third, third generation, sorry. You know, it did take a little bit of lining up, Tony, with the, uh, the time differences and Australia being in uh, different time zones. And I think we're in the future, actually, uh, for where this superstar is from. So right. really can looking we, forward to can it. Can we cut the bullshit and actually yeah. tell everyone that you stuffed up the dates? Well, we were going to have an interview with a third-generation yeah. wrestler who currently yeah. resides in Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. yeah. Who's from one of the most famous wrestling families in the history of the, the Von, world. The Von Trapps? No, Tony. <laughs> it's not Sound of Music, you dickhead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a wrestling podcast, Tony. That's your other podcast. Um, yeah, so obviously... <laughs> with the... I thought you were doing that deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> It's the Von Eriks. The Von Eriks. That's who it was. That's it. You buffoon. Uh, so we were, we were going to have a chat to one of the Von Eriks. Uh, yes. But uh, you got your dates wrong. Well, well, technically, yeah, Tony. What, what I was meant to do, because, you know, Australia is 22 hours ahead. We're in the future compared to Hawaii. You know what I mean? That's correct. We're, well, I accidentally, I didn't carry the, the one in my... We're in the future my... compared to the whole of America. Some might say. <laughs> no, I'm saying so Hawaii instead, is different. So you were meant to go 22 hours in the future and instead you've gone six days, uh, eight days into the future. So next week we'll be... Next week we'll be joined 
by one member, maybe two members of one of wrestling's most famous families. And hey, let's learn a curve pony. Which it's, means yeah. that what we had to do was bring next week's guest forward to this week, and we'll announce who that is very, very shortly. But first of all, Paris to Silver last week, boys. Fantastic interview. What a great kid. It's not that easy what I do getting the guests, is it, guys? Uh, he does make it look easy, oh, Tony. Yeah, no, you do he make makes it look easy. easy. Credit where it's due. <laughs> yeah, Paris was fantastic last week. I really enjoyed talking to him. Yeah, um, very good. And, and, and on the back of it, PWA have had some good news. They're going to run a live show in the middle of October. So, yeah, obviously, obviously we had something to do with that, Tony. Yeah, yeah oh, no doubt about yeah. it. No doubt Governments about it. would have heard the interview. Wrestlers need to get back to work, mate. No, exactly. Anyway, guys, let's get into our guest for this week. He's a big name in the world of mixed martial arts and also a name in the world of wrestling as well having been involved with a couple of uh, organisations over the time. He's interviewed some of the biggest names in wrestling and has definitely been a part of some of the biggest organisations in martial arts. He's a Melbourne boy who lived in America for a while. He's back home now with his wife and son. Let's welcome a good mate of mine and a good friend of the program, Michael Chavello. G'day, Michael. How are you? Great to be here, guys. Lyle and Brent and, of course, UTP. It's great to be on here with you. Sorry, who? T.P. Shebeki, right? T.P. <laughs> Close. T.S., I'll take. <laughs> it's great yeah, to be on here, boys. Yeah, yeah good Tony, setup, you boys. Thank you. a close friend of yours. Well, he you is know. a close friend of mine. Uh, and to the extent, well, when do we go back? We go back probably nearly 25, 30 years, don't we? Mate, we go back, Shebex, you and I, to 1994. I'm... I've been in the fight game commentary business since that night. You were the first guy I ever commentated with for fight sports. It began with you, mate, in 1994. Can you believe it? You were yeah. the one that showed me the ropes on that first night. Yeah, it was a, a kickboxing event in Sunshine, if I remember correctly. It was a kickboxing event with Pat the Phantom Prostofi as the main event. And I was begged to do the commentary by the promoter. And I didn't want to do it. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, all I can remember is you gave me some great instruction that I've kept with me my entire career. And I'm still using that instruction. But, mate, it goes back to 1994. Don't butter him up too much. It's fair to say that you saying that you didn't know what you were doing. But next to Tony, you obviously look like an expert because you've gone on (laughs) to bigger and better things. Yeah, but don't forget back then, Shebex was the man who a year later would go on to be the voice of gladiators nationwide and be the envy <laughs> of all of us voice people. So you know what, boys? Back then, Tony Shebeki was the S-H-I-T, as they say. And now um, he just is S-H-I-T. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put up with this every week, Mitch. Uh, and obviously, obviously a chapter in the book too, I would have thought. You know, you are very prominent in my book, my friend. You are very prominent. Um, so you, you've got a book that comes out tomorrow. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the, uh, the book is called Goodnight Irene. It's a memoir and it goes back through my, uh, my growing up and uh, how I, I eventually became a commentator and got into the fight commentating business and, you know, got to meet a lot of celebrities and interview them for a, a talk show I did over in the US and how I cracked US TV and now television through Asia. And um, it sort of details a, a journey of a, a once bullied fat kid who grew up loving wrestling um, to, to become 
one of the most successful global sports commentators in the business. And hopefully it's a book that people will get a lot of fun out of. There's some great celebrity stories and behind the scenes stuff with, you know, wrestlers like Hulk Hogan and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Junkyard Dog and Mario Milano and, uh, you know, go behind the scenes of Lucha Underground and a whole lot more. And hopefully uh, it'll inspire a lot of people, especially younger people that uh, no matter what problems or hardships they may be facing in their life, uh, stick with it. You know, stick with your desire, make it happen, work your fingers to the bone and, and you can do it. Well, and you mentioned you were a fat kid who got bullied a bit as a, as a kid and all that sort of stuff. You went to Xavier College as well. So what were your parents' thoughts of you becoming a sports commentator, having been through a, uh, a nice private school and all that sort of stuff? Well, you know, uh, it's not the direction, I suppose, that instinctually a lot of parents want you to go in. It was one that I never wanted to take. I, I always wanted to be an architect growing up. That was my main thing. I wanted to be an architect. But the strange thing is, Shebex, that, you know, I remember watching wrestling for the first time. It was 1985, April 1, Melbourne, Channel 9, I believe it was, being to WrestleMania, live into my... It wasn't live. It was delayed in my living room from this faraway place called Madison Square Garden. And the first match on that card was Tito Santana versus the Executioner. And I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. And, and, and since that time, I started commentating, imagining wrestling matches in my head, playing in the backyard. And my mum would actually be the only person who ever heard this commentary. It was, you know, the, the matches were in my head, but the commentary was out loud. And she heard them while she was hanging the washing on the line. But she never thought anything would come of it. But later on, when I, when I decided to do work experience at Triple M, because no architecture firms accepted me, and mum suggested, well, you've got a good voice. Why don't you do radio? And I debated with her and argued, and eventually she convinced me, and I did radio, and all thoughts of becoming an architect went, and all I wanted to do was broadcast media. And one thing led to another. Radio led to, to television, led to commentary, and I was off and running. But certainly I don't think it's, you know, from the, from the moment your child is born, I don't think any parent says, well, I, I want my son or my daughter to become a, a sports announcer. It's just, you know, it's not part and parcel, is it? All of us really want to think our, our kids will become doctors or lawyers or, you know, whatever it may be. But sports announcer really doesn't, you know, come up that often. No, and that's true. And you're lucky your mum said you got a good voice. Why don't you get in radio? My mum said you got a good head. Get into radio. <laughs> um. So we'll get we'll touch on all the wrestling stuff later. This being a wrestling podcast, but I'm interested in how you became a fan and got into um, into the fight game. Well, you know, I was working for a community radio station when I was a teenager, uh, hosting a Sunday morning sports show on Southern FM Radio, which was located in Moorabbin in Melbourne, atop an, uh, on top of an, an op shop and a Salvation Army store, and. Um, I'd interviewed in 1991 or 92, it was Stan the Man Longanides. And I thought, he's a cool guy, you know, eight-time heavyweight kickboxing champion of the world, gave me a great interview. And then I found out that Stan was fighting Dennis Alexio, who people will remember as the co-star of Van Damme in the movie Kickboxer. Well, he was a real world champion in kickboxing, the world champion. He was the man back then. And he came to Melbourne to fight Stan the Man on December 6, 1992. I got a press pass for it. I interviewed Alexio. I fell in love with him. We became friends. Um, he really was an inspiration for a young 16-year-old at the time. And I fell in love with kickboxing. Uh, I dropped out of university, studying journalism. After three months, I, I hated it. 
I started working in a martial arts magazine writing. And then, you know, like I said, Paul DeMacaulay, a promoter of kickboxing, begged me to commentate his show. He'd heard me commentate soccer on radio and he thought I could do a good job kickboxing. And I said, Paul, I, I don't know anything about it. I can't commentate it. I can write a bit about it, but, you know, I don't feel confident. Well, he begged, he begged, he begged. And eventually I said, yeah. So I rocked up this night at the Sunshine Police uh, Youth Centre in, 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 out there in Sunshine, Macedonian Youth Centre. 150 people or so in the crowd. This guy, Tony Shebeki, next to me, having no real idea what I was doing or what I would say. But, and, you know, the moment I opened my mouth and we went live, it just, it felt natural. It came out and it's been coming out, thank God, ever since. Yeah. Now, when when uh, mixed martial arts started coming uh, coming around, how did you explain mixed martial arts to family and friends for this um, new sport that was coming? It's not kickboxing. It's not boxing. It's not barroom fighting or male cockfighting. How did you explain it to family and friends at the time? Well, it was difficult because when when UFC first started, and that was really the world's first exposure to mixed martial arts. Uh, was in 93. And I remember writing a story on it because I was writing for Blitz magazine back then. So I was covering it from UFC number one. But back then, of course, the term mixed martial arts had not been coined yet. That was later coined, I believe, by, uh, it might have been by Jeff Blatnick, who was a, a commentator in the very early days. Um, it, it was known as No Holds Barred or Anything Goes or Tudo, which was hard to explain. When I started commentating it, I did my first one in 97. It was the first time that MMA came to Australia, a cage combat show in Sydney. Uh, it was just sort of starting to be called mixed martial arts. Still, though, it was hard to translate that to people because a lot of people thought and still do that when you say mixed martial arts, it means a bunch of guys in karate uniforms and kung fu uniforms doing Jackie Chan moves and, and stuff like that, which is not the case. It's a hybrid of striking arts, wrestling, grappling, etc. Uh, so even back then it was like, you'd try and explain it. No one would get it. And you pretty much just say, okay, listen, it's pretty much no holds barred inside a cage. Yeah. And you know, basically street the, fighter too. Yeah. You know, it's basically as close as you can get to a real life fight, but with a rule set. Uh, and, and still today, you've got to sort of explain it to people that way, even though it's not what it's about. People's very limited capacity to understand these things means you've got to really simplify it uh and uh, that's just the way it is it's a good question Lyle, because for yourself michael as a commentator did you find you had to change your commentary style from kickboxing and muay thai and all that sort of stuff that you used to do which is so traditional in its way to then commentating to a sport that was just as much about entertainment as it was about the fight it was it was more difficult I mean, I've been commentating Muay Thai and kickboxing for so many years before doing MMA. Uh, it was difficult because all of a sudden I had to learn a whole new rule set, a whole new sport, a whole new bunch of techniques when it went to ground that I didn't know. And admittedly today, I mean, I've been commentating the sport for, you know, 24, 25 years. I still don't know a lot of the more complicated techniques when it goes to ground, which is why we rely on a very good co-commentator, an expert commentator that knows what to do. So you sort of sit out and let them take the reins when that happens. But that was the main challenge. It's still a challenge getting to know the techniques. And I think Shebeck's that, and you'll know this as a, as a commentator, especially as a play-by-play commentator, the worst thing a commentator can do is to try and fool their audience. Your audience is always going to be more knowledgeable than you are in whatever sport you're commentating. 
You cannot pull a fast one over them. You can't try to fool them, okay? And why would you? When, you, when you're a part of a commentary team, you know when to throw to your co-commentator and let them take over the expert stuff. If you're commentating solo, you know when to lay out or when not to get too inside football, so to speak, not go too deep into the technique and keep it more general so you don't fall into that trap of getting exposed for any lack of knowledge. Yep, no, Is there any well, chance you can give some of this advice to the AFL commentators who <laughs> are horrendous at the moment? Anyway. Mate, I, I, no, I, I, you know, I hear you. I, I hear you on that because I, I listen to the AFL commentators now and then. They're not like they were back when I was younger. You know, you, you don't have the guy. I, I was a big fan of even a Rex Hunt. And Rex would talk a lot, but he had personality. He could convey it very well and got you excited. Okay. I was a, a fan of Harry Beitzel back in the day. You know, I was a fan of some of those classic guys, Mike Williamson back in the day. These guys knew how to call it. And it wasn't all about them. It was about excitement. It was about drama. It was about storytelling and also about the technical side of it. They had the whole package together. But now it seems like you've got a bunch of ex-football players, maybe five of them of a broadcast who is far too many and a couple of boundary writers who is one too many. And everyone's lending their two cents worth trying to outdo the other guy, trying to up the ante in comedy. We don't want that. We want drama. We want storylines. We want good old-fashioned footy commentating. And uh, sadly, it seems to have gone by the wayside. I mean, we still get it from, from Bruce McAvaney. Uh, we used to get it from Dennis Cometti. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're guys who are from a, from a classic era. Speaking of commentators who had personality and pizzazz <laughs> and style. Yourself, are you? No, I wasn't going to talk about myself. I was going to talk about Gorilla Monsoon. My Would it be idol. fair to say that he was probably the one that really shaped your commentary style, Mick? 100%. 100%. The moment I heard Gorilla Monsoon, again, WrestleMania 1, 1985, and he was like, welcome everybody to the greatest wrestling extravaganza of all time, WrestleMania from Madison Square Garden. I'm Gorilla Monsoon alongside, uh, you know, Jesse the Body Ventura. I mean, I was blown away. That voice, the, the character, the sense of drama, uh, the intonation, the cadence, the pitch, everything about Gorilla, the way that he told the stories, the way he, he commentated the techniques, it was all so fluent. It had you on the edge of your seats. And, uh, you know, to later find out he was a, an Italian-American, the son of Italian immigrants, just like me. You know, I'm an Australian-Italian. He was an American-Italian. And, and, and uh, he, he was a huge inspiration. And I, I do a lot of stuff still in commentary, and I have over the years that is an homage to Gorilla Monsoon. And even my catch cry, Goodnight Irene, which is the title of my book, is an homage to Gorilla. I mean, I, I first started screaming that doing track and field as a 16-year-old. It sort of just came out of my mouth. And when I was thinking, well, where did I get that from? Where did I hear it from? It was from hearing Gorilla Monsoon commentate adorable Adrian Adonis. And Adrian's finishing move was a sleeper hold that Gorilla Monsoon called Goodnight Irene. A lot of people think, oh, well, Chevello ripped that off, off Gorilla Monsoon. That was Gorilla's finishing call. Well, it never was. Gorilla Monsoon never, ever said goodnight, Irene, except as the name that he called Adrian Adonis's finishing move. And um, I just remember my main memory of Gorilla Monsoon is the creative names he had for different parts of the human anatomy. Oh, the occipital protuberance. He had, he had a lot of them. And you know, the, the, great, the, the great thing is, guys, that I, I'm friends with Jim Ross. And Jim and I will chat every now and then. We're just chatting today over, over email. And every now and then I'll, I'll ask him, I'll say, Jim, tell me a story about Gorilla Monsoon. 
tell me about Gorilla, my idol. And he'll send me a story about Gorilla and his big, uh, you know, driving around his big Cadillac and going to the casinos together. And Jim used to be his driver. And every time I get a story from Jim Ross, it's a good story. It's a great story. So I'm happy that my image of Gorilla, who I never got to meet, I never will meet, of course, um, is, is not going to be shattered. It's upheld by, by JR and, and those that I've met that knew him. Your time, you spent a fair bit of time over in the States living in Las Vegas, if I remember correctly. That would have been an amazing time as well, being part of the fight game and being in Vegas. It was extraordinary. Uh, moved over there in 2000 and, uh, 2011. Uh, stayed there for six years. Lived right behind the Strip, right behind the Bellagio and the, and the Cosmo in a great apartment. Uh, fight capital of the world. It was, uh, Vegas is a tremendous city. It's, I love it. Um, got to experience Vegas as everyone else does, but also as the locals do. Uh, you know, our first son was, was born there. We had a great community off the Strip. And it's a great city and being plugged into that local, you know, that fight scene where there's so many fight events and not just UFC, but line fight, Muay Thai and kickboxing and wrestling and coming to town and all those events that everything came to Vegas, you know, the entertainment capital of the world, the fight sports capital of the world. And just being a part of that for, for, for such a long time, immersing myself in it was, was an extraordinary experience. Well, it's fair to say, Mick, that, when you, when you look at the comparison between UFC and the, the championship that you're a part of, one championship, would it, would it be akin to a relationship between the WWE and also, let's say, New Japan Wrestling? Both extremely popular companies in their regions, but sort of still far enough apart to be not real competition? Yes. Yes, I would agree, in part. Uh, yes. UFC, let me put it this way. The ideology between the two is completely different. The way we market, the way we present our athletes, the way we present our, our, our shows is completely different. Uh, in one championship, it's all about the martial arts spirit. It's all about martial arts warriors. It's not about blood. It's not about, you know, uh, doing simulated sex as a celebration uh, on your opponent when you beat them. It's not about pushing and shoving at press conferences because there's no need to sell a pay-per-view. We don't use the pay-per-view model. We're on terrestrial TV in over 150 countries worldwide. Uh, there's no trash talking. We, we don't want it from our athletes. You know, so it's, it's presented differently. Yes, the sport is the same. But other than that, everything is different. And when it comes to one championship and you talk to Chatri Sichitong, who is the CEO and chairman and founder of one championship, he's never competing against the UFC. His competition, one championship's competition, is the NFL. That's his main competition. He wants to be bigger than the NFL. And they're getting wow. there. Just earlier this year, Tubala put together a, a data uh, composition of the most watched sports organizations in the world as far as online views go. WWE was number one. NFL was number two. NBA was number three, one championship, not MMA, but one championship was number four. So when I say that one championship is looking at NFL, that's their competition, not UFC. Yeah. The, the, that's incredible. 
That is incredible, isn't exactly. it? I'm actually shocked yeah. about that. That that that's uh, that's those numbers are so big. Talk to us about, and I'm not sure how much you know about the history of kickboxing and wrestling throughout uh, Asia, especially Japan. There's been very much for many a year a a big correlation between the two. Well, there has. There's always been an affinity between the two, and and that's the Japanese merging together of their love for professional combat sport and professional sports entertainment. I mean, we first saw that back in the 1970s when Muhammad Ali fought Antonio Inoki at the Budokan. That was a merging between sports entertainment, their version of Hulk Hogan, Inoki, against the best combat athlete on the planet, Muhammad Ali. Now, here's an interesting story, guys. A few years ago in Vegas, I was out on the town with Michael Jai White, the actor who, of course, you know from Blood and Bone and Spawn and Black Dynamite. And he'd played Mike Tyson in the HBO movie Tyson. We were out and about at the Bellagio. We bumped into a guy called Gene Kilroy. Gene Kilroy was the former business manager of Muhammad Ali. And being as curious as I am, speaking to Gene, I started asking him about Inoki versus Ali. And he was talking about how Ali took so much damage to his legs. And get this, I, I didn't know this. He said, Ali took so much damage to his legs that night from Inoki's kicks. And for those that haven't seen it, I'll just say here, jump on YouTube afterwards, take a look. What happened in the fight was, it, was, it wasn't an entertaining contest because Inoki pretty much went to ground, but, but scooted, and Ali stood standing, and Inoki kicked his legs. But as Gene Kilroy told me, Inoki kicked Ali's legs so badly that the threat of amputation was very real. If they did not get Ali the medical care they did straight away after the fight with Inoki at the Budokan, Ali would have lost at least one leg. That is a story you never hear about in any of these documentaries on Ali. But I heard that from the horse's mouth, from Gene Kilroy, his business manager and one of his best friends. Did, with with the the early rise of MMA in Japan, like with the uh, like Pancras, and then you know leading into Pride and and things like that, you think the the Japanese blending the two two sports, it's a shoot fight, and then bringing in pro wrestlers. You think that did damage in the long run uh, to the shoot look, fight game? Look, look, it may it may have done some damage to the reputation in that there came a point where a lot of people were asking, is it a work or is it a real fight? You're bringing in pro wrestlers. Some of the fights look so extravagant that you think they've got to be a work. How are these guys pulling off techniques like this? You're selling storylines. You're selling comic book characters like you would the WWE back in the 80s and 90s. We're pushing the big comic book character style storylines. So a lot of people thought it was a work. I have heard from various sources and fighters I know that some of the stuff was a work. Um, I won't mention necessarily specific organizations or specific specific fighters but i've heard that some of it was a work look it meant money at the box office it meant ratings on tv it meant record ratings on tv when you had someone like an akabono come in and fight hoist gracie on new year's eve you know ratings winner when you had someone like bob sap who used to be a, a professional wrestler and a footballer come in and fight k1 and fight in pride Another ratings, you know, blockbuster on, on Fuji TV, millions and millions tuning in, 54% share, you know, with Bob Sapp fought. 
Um, Akabono Hoist Gracie was another massive share. So it, it, from a money point of view and a fan audience point of view, it worked. From a point of view of reputation as, as far as, you know, is this real or not, I, th I think it, it may have, uh, you know, stained some of that reputation. Lyle, would it be fair to say, and you've read Ken Shamrock's book, that he was probably one of those people that has really blown the lid off the, uh, the work type of ethic? Yeah, yeah. Look, I recently finished that book and he's pretty open in it, um, warts and all, um, you know, with his storied uh, life, basically. And yeah, like with Pancras and stuff, when they first started, you know, it was a, sh you know, shoot fights and, you know, the winner wins and the loser loses. And then, you know, three or four events into it, he gets a tap on the shoulder. You have to lose this event and him being disgruntled and then him re really realising what the uh, the Japanese business was. Um, uh, whose book was this, Tony? Um, Ken Shamrock. I can, yeah, 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 Ken. Well, you know, yeah, I... I I don't think Ken has made too many secrets that that stuff did happen. And, you know, there, there's a perfect example, really. Yeah. You know, Ken, when Ken left WWE and he went back to mixed martial arts and he didn't do his reputation in MMA very good, I thought he should have stuck with WWE because I thought he was an amazing, an amazing run in WWE, especially his work that he did with The Rock. And, you know, when he was the guest referee of that awesome match with Stone Cold and Bret Hart. And he, he did so much good stuff, Ken Shamrock. Uh, but then, you know, money talks and... and uh, you know, there's it, 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 the work rate would have been easier in mixed martial arts, even though you know you think it would have been harder because it's it's real as compared to the more choreographed stuff. Um, but the work rate would have been so much harder in WWE in the hours and the traveling than it would have been in mixed martial arts. He could get a payday in MMA that he have to put in a lot more hours and days and, and, and months in to get the same payday probably in WWE at the time. Um, but you know, it also comes down to, to selection as well. I mean. When Brock Lesnar made his mixed martial arts debut at the LA Coliseum uh, against, it was a, a, I forget his name, a Korean guy anyway, and he, he bludgeoned this Korean guy, Min Soo Kim or something his name was. But originally, Brock Lesnar was scheduled to face Hong Man Choi. Hong Man Choi was a K1 star, seven foot three, suffered gigantism, huge, huge, seven three, okay, about 180 pounds, massive, biggest human being I've ever stood next to. But the official reason why the fight never happened is because the California State Athletic Commission, I believe, found the tumour inside the head of, uh, of Hong Man Choi, the tumour that developed from his, um, his uh, gigantism, right? And so they ruled that he couldn't fight. The unofficial story is that Brock did not want to fight Hong Man Choi for his first time in mixed martial arts. Uh, given that Hong Man Choi really had no experience in MMA himself, and Brock was an NCAA All-American wrestler, fantastic championship wrestler, you know. Um, it made no sense. Brock would have taken him down pretty easily, I figure, and tapped him out any number of ways. But uh, he didn't want to fight Hong Man Choi. So he fought a much, you know, I, I, I guess a much less imposing physical figure in this other Korean guy who fought and, and, and beat him up. Been some big names make the crossover. Michael, uh, from MMA to wrestling, and, and most recently, Ronda Rousey, Shayna Baszler, Matt Riddle, and the like. There's also been ones that have gone the other way as well. Uh, you're, who, who do you think have been the most successful to go each way? Uh, you know, Bobby Lashley did well. I thought Bobby did very well. I commentated a few of Bobby's fights. 
Uh, you know, Bobby was a big name in the WWE. Oh, sorry, guys, lost my microphone. One sec. You're right. Bobby was a, a big, big name in the WWE, having you know fought in WrestleMania, that very famous match with Donald Trump involved in it. Of course, Bobby Lashley was was part of that. Uh, so he was a, he was a megastar, and he switched over to mixed martial arts. Performed very well. Had quite a few mixed martial arts fights against some very good opponents. I actually commentator. I remember him against John Ott uh, on uh, Titan Fighting Championships. You guys can go on YouTube and find that. It's got like 12 million views. It's Bobby Lashley versus John Ott, O-T-T. Check it out. Great fight. Um, tough fight. Lashley was beating him up in the first round and Ott powered back and Lashley tied out in the second and third. But I think Lashley's been one of the better crossovers. It's a shame we never saw Dave Batista do more. Dave had one mixed martial arts fight for CES on the east coast of America. Over there, I think it was in either Philadelphia or in Providence. Uh, never got to see more from Batista. It seems like for a few guys, it's, um, it's a, a do it once, have it on your bucket list ticked off and it's done, you know? And unfortunately, there's a lot of that that happens in the fight game, in kickboxing, in mixed martial arts. A lot of people treat it like, uh, like skydiving. It's something you want to do. You want to have a go of, but once you've done it, that's it. Now you can go tell everyone you've done it. You can put Instagram photos. You can put tweets out there, Facebook photos. Show all your mates, show all your buddies, brag about it. You've done it, done. And so you see a lot of people come into the sport, have a fight, get out and have the boasting rights of it, but not, not pursue it any further. Is that because they realise how hard it is, Mick? Um, a, yes. Yes, most definitely. And B, they just don't have what it takes to go further, Tony. It's just ticking it off the bucket list. Check, done it, boast to my mates, but... I don't have the guts or, infest, or you know, as, as Gorilla would say, the guts and intestinal fortitude to keep going with this. You know, that's what and it that's, is. Yeah. That, that's like uh, Shaquille O'Neal giving uh, Dana White a call and asking for a match in the UFC. Um, right. It's I, a lot of publicity. It's good publicity. It's never going to happen because there's no way a guy like Shaquille O'Neal, who is worth mega millions, is going to risk any sort of physical injury for what would be considered a very small payday for him in the UFC. Now that I, I picked that up on uh, your voice versus uh, Dana White uh, interview. What's it like sitting across from a man that is so intense and, you know, he's dividing in uh, the MMA world? Dana's great. I, I can only, Lyle, I can only talk about people, how they treat me. So I can't go off what others say. I know that there's been stories. You've heard horror stories. You've heard great stories about Dana. For me, he's always been a gentleman. He's always been great. Our interview was gold. It was fantastic. It was an interview that came about because fans wanted me to do a voice versus Dana White. And I uh, tweeted out, this was back in 2013. I tweeted out that I didn't think it would happen because at the time there was some uh, conflict between Access TV and the UFC uh, with footage, et cetera, and Mark Cuban and Dana White, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I don't think it'll ever happen. And Dana tweeted back and said, what's the voice versus? Um, you know, pretty much, yeah, what's the voice versus? Boom, a whole heap of fans immediately tweeted him saying, you've got to get on the show. Chevello does a great interview. Please, please, please get on there. And Dana said, done, I'm in. I messaged him on Twitter in private. We organized the interview there and then. His only stipulation was he doesn't want to go to Dallas to shoot it. He wants to do it in Vegas. And I said, mate, I live in Vegas. Too easy. And it was, it was great. His office is crazy. It's like walking into the lair of a criminal mastermind. He's got, 
He's got a, a saber-toothed tiger's skull, genuine. He's got handguns. He's got a bomb with the letter F on it. So literally an F-bomb because Dana's known as Dana effing white. He drops the F-bomb. It's his favourite word. He's got that swear word on a large poster written over his wall. He's got a giant, I'm talking giant photo of the back of Mike Tyson's neck. And here's the piece de resistance. He has a photo of a Japanese Yakuza gangster naked having sex with a Japanese lady on the floor. It's this massive photo that's called the Yakuza sex photo. And the story is that Dana received this photo from a mate of his who's in the art industry, sent it to Dana. Dana unfolded it or un unwrapped it and said, what the hell am I meant to do with this? I can't take it home. It's two naked people banging, you know? <laughs> and so he got his secretary to put it in storage. And when Dana went to Japan for the UFC, he met up with this guy that sent him the picture. And the guy said, oh, Dana, you know, how's the Iraqi going? It was a picture by a, 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 an artist called Iraqi. And Dana goes, man, I've got that thing in storage. I mean, what the hell did you give me that for? And the guy goes, Dana, do you know how much that picture is worth? So he told him. And as soon as Dana found out, he rang his secretary, said, get that thing out of storage now and hang it in my office. So it's the, it's the most brazen, the most jaw-dropping thing when you walk in Dana's office to see the Iraqi Yakuza sex photo. <laughs> uh, during the interview, you, uh, you stumped Dana a couple of times with your deep uh, research of the man. What's it like putting hours of research into a, a subject like that? How many hours are we talking? Because we don't do any research. <laughs> uh, that's, you know for me that's always been the fun part i love it i love the research uh i would usually go two weeks out from an interview i would totally immerse myself for two weeks i would watch every documentary i could find of that person um i would read every book i could get a hold of i would google every uh every article i could read on them every previous interview i could watch on them um i get it all the reason being that a I might find an answer to a question I like that I'll try and ask differently that I want my fans to know. B, I don't want to ask too many questions, if any at all, that other people have asked, especially if those other interviews have been mainstream. If they've been small niche interviews, then okay, I can get away with it. My, 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 my audience is a national TV audience. I can give it to them if I think it's going to garner a good answer. But I don't want to rehash what and, and those sort of people were doing. And um, I, I would just totally immerse myself. I'd usually come up with 50 questions, which was far too many. Uh, the night before, I'd colour it down to 20 questions, but I still have the other 30 there as a backup. And, um, you know, never short of a question, but the, the total immersion is a process I absolutely love. And what um, I was going to say, one thing I do love is the way that you actually handle the interview, Michael, and you just, you become so personal and personable with these people that you're interviewing. And the one, I love the interview that you had with Stone Cold Steve Austin. It just, it, it, he looked so natural in his answers to you. It was just, it was a really good interview. Let me tell you, um, oh, I'm gonna blow my own trumpet here and I don't care because Stone Cold Steve Austin, the voice versus Stone Cold Steve Austin was the best interview ever done with a professional wrestler. It is one of the, I will say it's as close as you can get to a perfect interview. It's not just me saying that. It's, it's so many people have said that over the internet, 
on YouTube, one channel that was called Illustrious Interviews, had that interview included with interviews like um, Bashir, Martin Bashir interviewing Princess Diana with Oprah interviewing Michael Jackson. I mean, they had me versus Stone Cold interview. I mean, that's amazing. But Stone Cold himself said it. Stone Cold still says it. You know, Stone Cold hosts on the WWE Network now the, the, the Broken Skull session. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a good interviewer himself. Well, when he was starting out doing these, he would ring me and he'd say to me, Michael, you did the best interview with me anyone's ever done. How in the bloody hell did you do it? How did you get me to answer all those questions and do it so well? And I've sat on the phone with Stone Cold so many times and gone through my whole interview process and given him tips and advice. And when he's had problems with certain guests or he didn't know how to approach certain guests, I won't mention who they are, but certain ones that have been on his show already. I'd you can mention him, it off air. <laughs> I'd, give him, I'd give him advice. And then I'd watch the show and he'd, he'd taken my advice to, 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 to gospel. You know, he's used my advice. I see it right there being used. His opening icebreaker, his opening question for one specific guest was exactly how I told him he should open up with this guest. You know, um, some guests are, are very runny with their mouths and they'll go around in circles and keep talking. It's hard to rein them in. And Steve's always asking me, you know, how do I rein them in? What do you do, Michael? How do you get them back on track? How do you control the interview? And that's my big thing. I'm like, Steve, it's all about control. In our interview, sure, you're Stone Cold Steve Austin. You're the Hall of Famer. You're the most famous, most successful pro wrestler of all time. You're the superstar. But this is my show, mate. This is my interview. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. You're on my strings. You're my marionette. I'm making you dance with my questions where I want you to go. Yeah. That's how you have to be as an interviewer. I said, when you've got guys there, you're interviewing them on your show, on the Broken Skull Sessions, and also on your podcast, you are in control. It doesn't matter who they are. Even if it's someone you always looked up to and idolized, it doesn't matter. And then if you find guys aren't opening up much to you, you've also got to remember, you're Stone Cold Steve Austin. To a lot of these guys, you're the shit. You're the bee's knees. You're the idol. You're on the pedestal. They might find it hard opening up and you know singing their own praises in the light or in the shadow, I should say, of sitting there against the you know, opposite of a guy who's done it all. So you've got to encourage them to come out of their shell, to bring this information, to not be afraid to share this information. There's so much to the art of getting a really good interview. And I'm just so thrilled that out of all the interviews I've done in my life, and I've interviewed billionaires and astronauts and politicians and sports people and rock stars, pop stars, all of them, the greatest one was that singular interview with Stone Cold Steve Austin because really, to me, it is the perfect interview. You mentioned um, people who, who Stone Cold's interviewing that may be, you know, in awe of him. Um, what was it like when you met Hulk Hogan? Brent, I haven't been starstruck much in my life. I've met everybody. I've, I've maybe been starstruck, I don't even think a handful of times. One of those times was when I met Palais. Another of those times was when I met Hulk Hogan. I mean, Hulk Hogan was the figure, a central figure of my childhood. Hulk Hogan was my childhood. WrestleMania 1 to 9 was my childhood obsession. WrestleMania 1 to 9 is still my wrestling obsession. I can't tell you how many times I put on WWE Network just to watch the shows from that era. So to meet Hulk Hogan, to spend so much time with Hulk Hogan, to interview him 
and again do a brilliant interview that he thought was one of the best of his career that he loved the experience was just was 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 amazing he was a gentleman and you you're staring into his eyes and you're looking at this guy seeing across from you and you're like i'm looking at history i'm looking at a man who was once the most famous most recognizable person on the planet i'm a guy who when you think of an era you think of a decade you think of the 1980s you think of Cindy Lauper, you think of Boris Becker, you think of Mikhail Gorbachev, you think of Ronald Reagan, well, you think of Hulk Hogan. He's right up there, you know? Uh, it's just, he, he, he transcended the genre. He was the first to do it. He became a pop culture figure. Nowhere in the world that guy could go that people didn't know who he was. And here he is talking to me, giving me his time. And these amazing stories he was telling about Andre the Giants and Bad News Brown and Haku and Randy Macho Man Savage, who ironically died the day that the interview premiered. You know, that was weird. It was strange. Uh, you know, talk about Ultimate Warrior. And then after the interview, the whole blow up with Warrior. Warrior got upset about Hogan's comments. Warrior opened up a Twitter account and a YouTube account and started posting videos, you know, bagging me out and bagging out the CEO of the network and calling out Hulk Hogan and all this. I approached Warrior and said to him, do you want to be on the show? Come back. But you can talk, but I'm not going to let it be a, a belittling session on Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to let you slag on Hulk Hogan for an hour. Well, Warrior agreed to be on the show. Then I sent Warrior um, a, a copy of a script to do some promos. And get this. Warrior wrote back and said, the script's too confrontational. I'm like... <laughs> You're a warrior. You're a guy who used to do promos about loading the rocket fuel and blasting out into space and incomprehensible promos. And my little script is too confrontational for you. But you go on these all-time rants on YouTube about Hulk Hogan. You're going to expose the lies of Hulk Hogan, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happened was we didn't hear from Warrior for weeks. We were set to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, interview Warrior at his house. And to do a TV interview, guys, like The Voice Versus, is a $30,000 production every time, at least, to travel, the lights, the camera, the sound, the post, everything, 30 grand, okay? So we got worried when we didn't hear from Warrior. One week, two weeks, two and a half weeks, trying to get a hold of him, nothing. Eventually, I say to the CEO and my producer, I say, listen, scrap it. I've got a bad feeling about this. Scrap it. Let's, let's go for Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray and Leonard instead. They emailed Warrior's agent and said, we're pulling the plug. The agent rings straight away and says, oh, no, no, no. Warrior's been fighting, quote, nuclear fires. <laughs> whatever, wow. whatever, whatever that means, whatever that means in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Warrior's been fighting nuclear fires, but he's okay to do the interview. The guys rang me back and they said, Chevello, do you still want to do it? Warriors apparently been fighting nuclear fires. I said, no, I don't want to do it. Nope, done. <laughs> Unreliable, can't trust it, bad feeling in my gut. Don't do it. Never got to do it because Warrior passed away, of course. We ended up interviewing Sugar Ray Leonard. It was a great episode. But, um, you know, all that is in the book, by the way. I go right behind the scenes, the whole Warrior episode, the whole Hulk Hogan interview, right behind the scenes to delve into even more. But... Um, just the way things pan out, man. I mean, Warrior was a, another, you know, character that I looked up to from my childhood. And it's unfortunate that I had that, you know, uh, online running with him and what happened. But I'll forever have that childhood, man. And so once again, coming back to your original question, meeting Hulk Hogan was like hopping in a DeLorean with a flux capacitor and going back in time 
and, and living in the 80s again. It was, it was awesome. Speaking of uh, childhoods, you've got your own son now. Uh, do you sit down in front of a TV screen and watch wrestling? Do you sit yes. down and watch MMA with him? I have two sons. One is six, Dominic. One is three, Lewis. And uh, Dominic is a wrestling fan like his dad. We started watching wrestling, it might have been a year and a half, two years ago. We went for a boys trip down to Rosebud one night. And I said, hey, uh, daddy's got some old wrestling videos here. I had down there, WrestleManias, WrestleMania 1 to a box set, WrestleMania 1 to 10, I think it was. I said, you want to watch some wrestling with daddy? Yeah, okay. I stuck on, I think I put it on WrestleMania 5, Macho Man Hogan. And he was glued to it, loved it. What a story. Yeah, right. And he was glued, he loved it, got into wrestling. And uh, now uh, his mum doesn't like him watching it that much, but she accepts that it's a boys thing we're into. So every now and then she'll say, okay, you can have a boys night. We put the little one to bed. Dominic stays up a bit later. We put WWE Network on and we go and have a look. And he likes to watch the newer stuff. I still want to watch the older stuff. <laughs> he loves, he loves uh, Bray Wyatt as the theme. Um, he loves uh, the, the devil. Uh, no, sorry, the, um, what's his name? The demon. Uh, oh, what's his name? Finn Balor. Finn Balor, he loves. It's his favourite. Demon Finn Balor is his favourite. He loves Brock Lesnar. I've got him loving Goldberg. He spoke to Goldberg on the phone. Goldberg wrote the forward to my book, guys. So it's a great forward that Goldberg did. I'm a massive Goldberg fan. Goldberg spoke to my son and he loved it. So yeah, he, he tunes in Shebex when we get the chance. He, he, he really enjoys it. And he's also been a uh, big star on the, on the uh, scoreboard of the MCG. Oh, thanks to you, mate. What a thrill. That was his first ever football match. We've still got the photo to, uh, to commemorate it. But um, it's good, you know. I, it's that, that, you look at him watching the wrestling. It's that same childlike wonder. And I don't spoil it for him. He's like, Dad, you know, um, what about this guy? What's happening here? What about that guy? Oh, he, he watched the WrestleMania when Undertaker had the fight against uh, AJ Styles, the, 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 the graveyard fight. Yeah. And he was a little scared. He's also like, Dad, is AJ Styles dead? Oh, my God, what's happening? And, you know, you've got to calm him down and make it so it's not too scary. But I don't want to – I stay kayfabe for him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't want to we do the it. same. We do the same thing for long. All right, you've got to, mate. You've got to. You're not going to tell them. Uh, he's still awake, so I got to whisper. You're not going to tell them there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> no, exactly. You're not going right. to tell them there's no tooth fairy, no Easter bunny. You're not going to tell them that wrestling is not full on real. And that's the beauty of it. That's the imagination. That's that's the glory of wrestling to be able to transport yourself away from your life for a couple of hours and let these guys do in the ring. Maybe what you always dreamed of doing as a kid, but you never could. They take our fantasies and they make those real. And for me, that makes wrestling real enough. And what's it like watching it through his eyes when you get to revisit the old moments? It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful because I enjoy explaining to him who all the guys are. I have a whole heap of old wrestling cards, right, um, that I scoured in America. And these are cards from the 80s, early 90s. I'm talking, you've got... You've got um, uh, uh, you know, Hogan, JYD, Haku, Rick Rude, Warrior. You've even got uh, Booger Bastion in there. Um, man, you've got heaps of these old guys in there. And we developed a card game. We play like trump cards almost. Where We get a, a Yokozuna's in there as well. God bless him. Another one of my son's favorite from more old school. Um, where we take a, a wrestler's card each. And then we figure out who would win between those two guys really quickly. So I'll draw, let's say... Paul Orndorff and he'll draw Yokozuna and for a moment we'll go back and forth 
Well, I think Orndorff would win because Orndorff was a more technical wrestler. Oh, but Dad, Yokozuna is like 500 pounds and Yokozuna would sit on him with a bonsai drop and Paul Orndorff wouldn't be able to get up. And I'd concede and go, okay, yep, Yokozuna was a world champion after all and he does outweigh him by about 300 pounds. Okay, so he takes my card. So we formed that really cool game that we love playing and it got him into the characters and it got him into you know, some of the old storylines and I really, really loved doing that with him. Mate, we're going to have to get you along to a local promotion. I would love it to, all mate. Starts you know, again next year. It, it, it's been so long since I've been to a regional promotion. Last time I was in America, I was the commentator for a promotion called FWE, Family Wrestling Entertainment, who did some unbelievable shows. You've got to check them out on YouTube. They had um, Mabel. Remember Mabel? Passed away not too long ago. Big Mabel. He was wrestling for them for a while. Uh, they had... Um, oh, man... Uh, Eric Young was there for a while wrestling for them. Uh, they had some sensational talent. Maria Canales was wrestling for them. Uh, Mike Bennett was wrestling for them. A lot of great talent. And I got to call a lot of their stuff uh, over there in New York. And um, that was the last time I went to like a, a, you know, a, a more regional, local wrestling show. But I'd love to get along to an Aussie one. Yeah, no, we'll uh, definitely organize that for you. Actually, speaking of commentating wrestling, you were also uh, involved with the Lucha Underground show, weren't you? I did the finale. I did Ultima Lucha, uh, Ultima Lucha, the finale, the, the, you know, their version of WrestleMania, uh, so to speak, as the producers would say. Um, an amazing experience done by Mark Burnett Productions. Mark Burnett Productions were the team behind the contender. Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Survivor? The Amazing Race? Et cetera, et cetera. Mark Burnett has won like 54 Emmy Awards, like the greatest production unit of all time in TV land. Anyway, I'd worked for them years ago in 2008, commentating the finale of the Contender Asia in Singapore. And the EP of Lucha Underground, a guy called Eric Van Wagenen, contacted me because their, their regular commentators were Matt Stryker and Vampiro. Well, Vampiro was set to wrestle in Ultima Lucha against Pentagon. And so Vampiro couldn't commentate. Eric convinced the guys at Lucha Underground to let me do it said, you won't find anyone better than Chevello to commentate wrestling. Give him a shot. He'll, he'll knock it out of the park. Even though I wasn't, you know, Latino background, but neither was Matt Stryker, so it didn't really matter. Um, funny thing was that the very not, night before, I was in Dubai commentating a show in Dubai. I literally hopped on a plane after the show, flew through the night in, from Dubai back to LA, got off the plane, went to my hotel, checked in, showered, went to Boyle Heights where the studio was in LA and commentated Ultima Lucha. Did it with Matt Stryker who had never worked with before and we blew it out of the water. Even Dave Melcher at the Wrestling Observer gave it a rave review, said I reminded him of a young Jim Ross. I wanted a young Gorilla Monsoon, but hey, I'll take a young Jim Ross. <laughs> and um, I I'm proud of it. It's, to this day, it's one of my, I think one of my best commentaries. It's one I can rewatch over and over. I get great joy out of it. Seeing those guys work was incredible. Um, you know, Ricochet, who's now in WWE, was, of course, their champion back then, Prince Puma. Um, they had some great talent. They were phenomenal to work with. Uh, Johnny Mundo, who is Johnny Morrison in WWE, was absolutely amazing. He fought Alberto Del Rio, um, who was Alberto Al Patron in Lucha Underground. So they had fantastic talent. The way they filmed it, the storylines were great doing pro wrestling on national American television to a ratings winning audience on Robert Rodriguez's El Rey network was a huge thrill. Fantastic stuff, mate. As we let you go, uh, remind us all where we can get the book from. It's released uh, today. 
It, this Thank show you. comes out on Thursday, so yeah, it's today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, grab a copy from uh, badapplepress.com.au, from Booktopia. If you're watching in the USA, it's a Barnes & Noble website. Um, man, just Google it. Good night, Irene Book, Michael Chevallo. It comes up everywhere. And I really hope everyone loves it. You'll love the wrestling stuff. There's lots of wrestling. Like I said, Gorilla Monsoon, Junkyard Dog, who I met when I was young, and Mario Milano, who I met when I was young, and through to Hulk Hogan and Stone Cold and my, my experience with WrestleMania and the story behind uh, Lucha Underground as well. It's all in there. So I really hope everyone gets a kick out of it. And of course, the best part, Tony Shebeki has a starring role in the book himself. Thank you very much. I've, I've just ordered the book, so I'm getting Tony to sign his chapter. You're uh, a, you're a good man. <laughs> and and I, we I will. Even, I even spelled we'll your link name the book. Right in the book, Tony. I even spelled your <laughs> Thanks, name. Thanks, right. Michael. <laughs> we will link the book in the episode notes. So go yeah. down and click on it. We will. Michael Chavello, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board, mate. Thank you so much. Uh, been wanting to do this for a long, long time. I'm finally glad we got the chance to do it, mate. Look after yourself and your family, and look forward to catching up soon. Shebex will do. And one last thing I'm going to say, it is to all those wrestlers in Australia on those shows that they consider small. But let me tell you, for that little kid sitting in the front row or the second row that's there eating the popcorn with his parents that night or his favourite uncle or whoever's taking him out to the wrestling, that is the world to them. They may never get to a WrestleMania or a SummerSlam or a Rumble, but they get to these local shows. They may never meet... A, a Brock Lesnar or a Bray Wyatt or a John Cena or a Randy Orton, but you are there, John Cena. You are there, Randy Orton. So keep it going. Never lose faith. You know, keep sending your show reels out there. Hope for big things. Push yourself, your character and your story and go for it. But always remember, you are the biggest thing in the world to that young kid sitting in those first two rows. As you were to, I'm sure all of us here right now, we were once those young kids watching these guys. Beautifully well said. Michael Chevallo well joining us here on the Turnbuckle. Back part two of the show. Fantastic chat there with Michael Chabella. Geez, he's done a fair bit, hasn't he, in a short time in his life? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, he's been definitely. very busy. Uh, I don't know about anyone calling you. I don't know about having you as one of the role models into your career, though, Tony. That no, seems like a stretch. I mean, you've yeah. paid him to say that. I don't even want to be my role, my role model. Well, if it makes that? you feel better, you're neither of ours. Excellent. Beautiful stuff. Uh, good to have Michael on. And we will have one of the Von Eriks on. Or two. Hopefully next week. Hopefully two of them. You want to take over the communication, Welshy, just to make sure it's right. <laughs> uh, easy. Easy. I'm still here. <laughs> Don't talk like I'm oh, not here. Sorry, Lol. Sorry. Well, no, it's, it's a week late, but we're gonna, we could have two brothers instead. So I'm going to get it all worked out. Down. Cheers, I tell you what, boys, uh, while we're still suffering the effects of COVID-19 down here in Victoria and the like, uh, it really looks like COVID-19 is hitting into the world of professional wrestling, especially over in the States with AEW, WWE and a lot of the independent circuits really being hit uh, by COVID-19 right throughout their rosters. 
Yes, well, WWE's been hit a few times and um, everyone was getting on them and they appear to have improved the way they do things. But with America being the way it is, outbreaks are inevitable. But it's the first time uh, AEW have been really badly affected. Yeah, I think Lance Archer went public. He tested positive or he's around people that tested positive. Um, Yeah, so it's... Changes bookings uh, of shows, and I feel it brought the Eddie Kingston um, match with Moxley forward. I mean, hot, not hot shot at it, but it brought it forward a little bit too quick. I really would have enjoyed Eddie Kingston building up to the match with his promos, because obviously his promos are second and none in so wrestling what was right the now. Go with Moxley. He had contact with someone who had contact with someone who had COVID nineteen. Moxley, then- no, Moxley's. Doxy was out a while ago for it. Um, yeah, because Renee got sick. Yeah. But um, at the moment, it's basically it's everyone who's been working um, on the independent circuit uh, appears to be compromised because the indies in America are getting people test positive left, right and centre, which stands to reason because of the number of cases there are in America full stop. So... Um, because AEW allow a lot of their wrestlers as independent contractors to work those independent dates appears to have compromised um, their roster somewhat. So, I mean, obviously it's really important to them that they continue to allow wrestlers to do independence. But I think while coronavirus is happening, I'd probably be considering just saying to them, look, you can work those independent dates, but if you're going to work them, we probably can't use you until the end of this because they can't afford to be affecting having five, six, seven, eight guys um, off of their television because they've got a smaller roster to work with. Yeah, it's bad enough for WWE because all of um, their new um, that new group. What are they called again? I keep forgetting. Uh, Retribution. Or- Retribution. All of Retribution are off for the next two weeks because they're in. Um, quarantine. I mean, and I just think with with AEW's smaller roster, they've probably got to make sure that they're not putting themselves at risk of not having a show one week. Yeah, I don't think you can flirt with the luck. I've seen over the weekend a few like Ring of Honor wrestlers and Impact wrestlers have they cancelled last minute to some of the independent bookings from this most recent outbreak. And I think where your main source of income does come from. You have to look after that first. And yes, everyone is taking uh, pay cuts everywhere, but at least they do have a home promotion that they can work for. Um, they're still putting food on their table. And yeah, like you said, the small roster size, it's, it's definitely flirting with luck. If you're having these guys you know, wrestling in a field, and I'm assuming it's not very stringent. And look, this isn't... This isn't the wrestlers fault like i mean they're they've been not a lot of them have not been earning money for a long time now the shows are on and they're not doing anything illegal it's the problem is the way that the the government's running over there that doesn't protect people and doesn't look after people um guys have got to eat they've got to earn money so they're gonna take bookings so um it's yeah it's catch 22 a little bit well, we know yeah. masks work because there hasn't been a Mexican wrestler that has tested positive yet, has there? 
Yeah, but uh, all of all of retribution of are in no, lockdown and they've been wearing masks. Speaking of retribution, that was a joke that went wrong. Uh, X Pac has he been rumored to join Retribution? Is that did I hear that no. correct? No, you didn't. Hmm. I think that was a I joke didn't. made by one of the Retribution members, ah, okay. T Bar, who said, "Who said um, everyone look out except for X Pac because he's got an awesome name." Okay. That was a joke because T-Bar yeah. and X-Pac. Um, but the retribution, is, although we're, we laughed a little bit about the creative they've been given, I want to give them a bit of props for what they're doing for themselves on social media. Their social media game has been quite entertaining. It's very, very good. They're uh, calling out Eric Bischoff. They're calling out some big names. Jericho. Um, Jericho. Yeah, the Jericho one popped me the most. And it was just a simple huh. And a screenshot of um, yeah, some of some of his podcasts. We'll say we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, it, definitely they're trying to run with the ball, and they're they're over on wrestling Twitter, so which is probably one of the hardest things to do. So hopefully, that yeah. So if they can get the hardcore TV. fan, they get the hardcore fan on board just through the well. Twitter game, maybe the hardcore fan will cut them a bit of slack at the start when the audience has returned, but that remains to be seen. All right. Uh, let's move our attention forward to new Japan wrestling and the uh, G1 results. Yeah. The G1 it's uh, last night was night six. Uh, I've got a score update while well, she is currently leading the tipping by two. Um, How come I didn't get asked to be a part of the tipping? Because you'll tip people who don't exist. Yeah. Oh, we already tipped for you anyway, Tony, and you're losing horrendously, like your footy tips this year and Jake's. Well, I would have had Jay I would have had Jay White. How's he going? He's doing all right, Tony. He's he's looking the goods at the minute, mate. He hasn't lost a match. I probably would have had Will Ospreay. How's he going? He's fifty fifty at the minute, mate. So not too And he's wrestling Jay White this week, so Yeah. Right. Who, who would you pick in Tony that? Hello? We asked who you would pick in that. In what? Oh, Adam Ospreay and Jay White. Uh, I'll be going for Will Ospreay. Okay. I thought you'd just be hoping down. that they all have a good time. Yeah. Uh, You'd be picking Jack... Jack Sabre Jones in every match, wouldn't you? Well, yep. yes, I would have picked Jack Sabre Jones. Or Zach. Well, he's not doing well at all, so... No, he's not. He, <laughs> what, about Juice, what about Juicy Robinson? He's doing okay. He's 50-50 as well, Tony. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Noticing a pattern, like you don't like the Japanese wrestlers, do you? Only because I can't pronounce their can't names. Pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't worry, Tony. They've got two of you. You know, Kota Ibushi. Just say Kota. Oh, it's fine. He, you know? Is evil Japanese? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, he's yes, all right. Uh, I don't mind him. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he's a big star, Tony. And he just lost to one of uh, Welsh's favourites, Yano. Yano also uh, is 3-0. He hasn't lost a match either, mate. He could... Can't cop Yano. Hey, is it true that Tanahashi hasn't won a match yet? He won last night. He beat your man, oh, Juice. okay. I mean, he had to fight for it too, Tony. He didn't just, didn't just get the easy win. He didn't really yeah. have to fight for it. It was booked that way. In the storyline, I'm kayfabe here. <laughs> kayfabe and Tony. That was the story of the match. He really... And he... Snuck out a win, Tony. So it's been I, I'm very hearing good. that people think that I'm actually call, people who haven't been listening may think that I think Zach Saber Junior's name is Jack Saber Jones, and not realizing it's a piss take on Tony. I'm, I better point that out. Oh yeah, you do. 
no, no, you don't. Do. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, he's also a vegan. If you're a new listener, no one that. He's a um, vegan as well, and comes up against Kenta. Case to... In his next he match, lost. does he? He, he lost, lost the key. Oh. No, no, he lost. that was last night, Tony. He are you, looking at, are you looking at an old article, Tony? <laughs> Probably. Kenta, um, or as you like to call him, Hideo Itami. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he would never He would never be able to call him that. Not He's so happy face. with the name change back. To, he, he couldn't pronounce that. Kenta <laughs> is just fine. So are we happy with the way it's uh, going, guys? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm loving it, happy. Tony. I'm always happy with the G1 because I never know where it's going. And some of the points, yeah. like the round robin's very hard to tip because you know, you might be able to guess how many, you'd be better off guessing how many points everyone's going to end up on rather than yeah. where they're going to pick him up from. Because I pick against Yano every time. Usually that's a very safe pick. <laughs> so, yeah, they always tell the storylines of guys getting off to a slow start and working their way in and you know what? The main man Tanahashi is doing this this year. Um, what if Yano wins the last it? couple of years? Uh, <laughs> it's twenty twenty. Anything can happen. Uh, it's true. It would be a big surprise though. <laughs> he just swept it. <laughs> yeah, swept it. Then like main evented squash- both nights at Wrestle Kingdom. Squashes someone in the final. Yeah. Uh, what do we think of Clash of Champions, guys? I um, thought it was a probably an average show, but saved by two excellent matches. It was bookend well. The uh, the triple threat ladder match, I'm assuming you're talking about, and the Roman and Jay match to close the show. Yeah, that that ladder match, Tony. Jeff yeah, Hardy wound the... back the he wound back the clock in some of those bumps, mate. Oh, mate, that that off the top of the ladder onto the ground. <laughs> through the ladder, through Sami Zayn to the ground. Yep, it was uh, he, he. He swantoned off the top rope. <laughs> um, I wonder why they fell... call it the swanton. <laughs> well, I asked Brusky. That's a deep cut. Anymore. That's a really that's deep, a deep cut. cut. That's that's the long time of the show. Um, he did that, Tony. He landed like a. Am I? No, you're right. You're good. I'm back. Yeah, you're back. Just keep talking no, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, he felt like a lead balloon, Tony. That was that was bad for his lower back and uh, his oh, cocktails, shot. that's for sure. What did you think of the finish? <laughs> Super creative. Um, the handcuff spots through the ears. Uh, Jeff's playing with fire there. <laughs> One day someone's going to botch that and rip his ear earlobe out. Um, and it was cool to see Sami Zayn. Well, it looks well, like he has a job. Well, Sami Zayn's got his um, definitely got his lockdown look going. <laughs> he's got the ISO look, that's for sure. Um, yeah, and he let's won talk, the belt. It was rightfully his. And let's talk about the main event because I thought uh, um, not only was it one of the better stories that's been told. There was like a great build, and the video package that opened for it was incredible. Character but, change of the century, Roman Reigns. He is yeah, just but what amazing. I loved, what I loved was the creative use of not having a crowd, which we've been calling out for, um, for people to do something different with that no crowd um, atmosphere, and to really sound like they turned down the volume and they had the guys talking at each other and a lot of yeah. a lot of talking throughout the match, which 
added, all it did was add to the match, add to the selling. Charles Robinson was fantastic in his role. Uh, Paul Heyman was fantastic. It really told a story of how sadistic Roman Reigns has become. Yeah. Paul Heyman could be a Broadway actor. He's, he sells stuff beautifully. He, he can play the he penguin. Picks on, <laughs> he picks up on the little things. Um, so so great. Like the way he was looking at Roman, even he was shocked and dis- yeah. and disgusted. And, and you could see in his face, he's not saying anything, but you can see that he, even he feels Roman's gone too far. He's like, this is a family member, Roman. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, the little bit at the end that Roman told Heyman to go get the lay and put that over he, around his neck. It's, the little things really, really sold it. Nah, absolutely loving Roman Reigns' character at the moment. And hopefully the rumours are true and it is building to him versus The Rock at some stage where oh. they actually are fighting over the that head of the table. So um, if it goes there, I think there'll be a lot of happy wrestling fans, including non-WWE fans. Mm. Oh, definitely. Uh, speaking of new angles, Buddy Murphy's new angles causing a little bit of controversy online. Yeah, so they've got him... Um, in some sort of a flirtatious relationship with Rey Mysterio's 19-year-old daughter. And a lot of people saying that it's a bad look considering what's gone on with speaking out and things like that. Um, and yeah, maybe it is a bad look, but at the end of the day, they're characters on a TV show. So um, oh yes, Buddy Murphy, the man, is 32 years old, but they've never said how old that character is. That character yeah. could be 25 for all we know. Um, no, People need to sometimes remember that characters in a TV show, like not necessarily representing real life, um, like often actors will be playing a different age to what they really are. Um, yeah, very true. So like, well, Alexa Bliss copped it online because she was, Happy to see Buddy Murphy, her ex-partner, get a good storyline. Yeah, yeah, she she, she copped it when she uh, and she's just congratulating an ex. It's it's weird. Like, do they have to go that route and do this storyline? Probably not. You know, they could do it another creative way, especially being so close to the speaking out movement. But like you said, I. But yeah. it's not illegal. Like it's two adults, um, and Correct. I know it's a it's a big it's a big uh, age gap. But I mean, I I personally wouldn't be interested in dating someone that much younger than me. But it happens in real life, yeah. and it's not illegal. Um, and should art be reflecting real life? Yeah, it should because there's different stories to tell. I don't want to watch movies where everyone on the in the movie is a good guy who does the right thing. Like. You've got to have your characters in movies that are doing things that make you uncomfortable. And wrestling's not real. It's characters on a screen. So there should be all gamuts of characters that make you sometimes feel uncomfortable, sometimes make you feel happy. Um, I don't trust WWE to do the story well, but (laughs) I don't think having an age gap in a relationship um, that makes you feel uncomfortable is a bad thing in art, per se. Yeah, no. I think may, may, maybe maybe you hit the nail on the head right at the end there with the WWE thing. Maybe wrestling fans, we can't trust 
WWE to do it right and do it the right way. Um, maybe it's that. Maybe that's where the backlash is. You know, interesting having Jerry Lawler out there. Uh, well, that's happening. a bad choice, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think um, maybe. I mean, it's not the biggest age gap we've had in a wrestling storyline. What was the age gap between Mark Henry and May Young when they were dating? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. But it was true love. They had a child in the end. So. No, they didn't. They had a hand. Yeah, they had a hand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no controversy in this, though. Our Twitch partner, Grintavision, is hosting the owners of New Zealand promotion Heathen Combat this Saturday. Yeah, so um, Grant's doing really well. I had a really good feedback to their um, episode last week when they had Jake Nova on doing sort of a career retrospective. And um, this week they've got Bianca and Michael who run Heathen Combat New Zealand, which is an up-and-coming promotion. And um, I know there was a really good uh, no-DQ bar fight on that show. They got a lot of people talking, so... uh, which featured Tali, who's been a guest on this show. So, yeah, tune in. I think that will be Saturday between 4 and 6 on Twitch. Um, and it's twitch.tv slash the power of Grint. There you go. To, so, so subscribe and flick him a, uh, some, some money and Ray will be on there. It's all good fun. And we're proud to support yeah. Grint Division, as we are also <laughs> proud to support <laughs> Viper Landscapes and Irrigation here in Melbourne, they're now taking appointments. So get your quote today. You can find them on Facebook and there's a link in the episode notes. Anyway, boys, we'll leave it at that. Another great show. Thank you so much. Tune in next week, folks. We've got two massive guests, one massive we guest. So. We may have no yeah. guests. Yeah, well, Lyle's in charge of it. So yes. there's probably not going to be a show. Some, sometimes I'm two steps ahead of people. Sometimes I'm seven days ahead of people, Tony. You just never know. You never know. So we could have two third-generation wrestlers and we'll also have members of the MWL roster. No, it's the same people. Oh, okay. <laughs> MLW. We'll have someone next week. Catch you then. <laughs> Amateur hour. <laughs>